0: Scripture today comes from Mark 10, verse 17 through 23. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So there's something funny about becoming a parent of young children, um, and that is that sometimes you have to ask questions that you don't want the, want the answer to. Uh, maybe if they're really young, maybe about Henry's age or a little bit, a little bit older, maybe, uh, when they're like a two-year-old, it's like, "Hey, Bud, what's in your mouth?" Like, I don't want to know the answer to that, usually. Or, you know, "What did you just eat?" Um, or, "Did you get that from the garbage can?" right? Those are not questions I want the answers to. Maybe when they're a little older, did you go to the bathroom before we left? Or did you wash your hands? And as adults, we ask ourselves questions sometimes we don't want to hear the answers to either. Maybe even perhaps about our faith. Is this all just kind of a big waste of time? Do I even believe this stuff anymore? Why am I still not happy? And we're probably still wondering if people wash their hands too, I suppose. You should wash your hands, by the way. Uh, During the season of Lent, we take time as a community to step back and kind of reassess. We share this with churches around the world, which is cool. It's a privilege to just be reminded of how big God's church is and what connects us. It's a privilege to be reminded that their growth in some way is our growth. Their maturity is our maturity. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lent is a time to ask ourselves sometimes difficult questions, to fast, to pray, to spend time in solitude, to take stock of your rhythms, some that you might be proud of and maybe some not so much. What do I need to give up or maybe leave behind? Maybe not even just during Lent, but perhaps permanently. What is entangling us or weighing us down? What is removing us from community or communion with Christ? And we are reminded of the good news, that God is making all things new. That is all, all of this is a movement, it's a movement toward good news. That God is a God of restoration, of renewal, of social justice, of personal holiness, of healing. He is transforming reality as we know it. God is a God of resurrection. So to coincide with Lent, today we are beginning a little mini-series between now and Easter called Renew, Rhythms of Restoration. It's a series that will hopefully awaken us to the ways Christ brings restoration and invites us into a life of renewal. So let's begin today with another uncomfortable question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean like we can't physically see him right now, at least I can't. And I can't speak for you, but he's never personally appeared to me in a vision or anything like that. So what does it mean to follow him? Is it material blessing? Is it assuredness? Peace? Special knowledge? Purity? Verse memorization? What does it mean to follow jesus for us well with that question simmering in your thoughts let's take a look at um, what josh had read earlier sort of the main course for today which is mark 10 17 through 23. here's what it says again as jesus started on his way a man ran up to him fell on his knees before him good teacher he asked and i'm imagining him out of breath here Good teacher, yes, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, do you declare all these I have kept since I was a boy? Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, time, the fa- or the, this, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So we're going to jump back into that passage in just one second, but I'm going to add a little personal note. So in a a few weeks, I'll step down, like I mentioned, as interim pastor. And I think if there's one thing I could sort of boil down the point I've been trying to make the last few months, at least one of them, is this. It's that goodness is a gift that we receive from God. Goodness is a gift that we receive from God. Wherever you see goodness, you see God, period. It doesn't matter if that person is Muslim, Jewish, agnostic, atheist, rich, poor, middle class, mature, immature. When you see goodness, you see God. It came from God. It derives from God. So when we position our lives to follow Jesus, we are redirecting our steps to follow goodness and mercy. And that's because we think that Jesus is God. And that's just the thing. We are wired to follow someone or something, even if it's not acknowledged. Someone or something is pulling you toward a way of thinking or doing or being. And it doesn't mean these things are bad, but they could be. So we take time to assess or reassess in a time like Lent. So we want to notice what we aren't noticing, you could say. So we hold up various aspects of our lives, our beliefs, our practices, our language, and we ask, is this good? Is this the spirit of Jesus? How do we know that my friends is another uncomfortable question i suppose here's what nt wright says and i think i have a picture of nt just because his name is tom his name is not nt tom wright we could cope the world could cope with a jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside his disciples minds and hearts the world cannot cope with a jesus who comes out of the tomb who inaugurates God's new creation right in the middle of the old one. It's an uncomfortable truth in some ways. So today we meet someone in the scriptures who is often called the rich young ruler. So let's unpack those identity markers for a second. He's rich. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story and mention that this man who approaches Jesus is wealthy. And he's not just like rich, he's very rich. All three of the gospel accounts, again, utilize a little play on words. It's like he walks away very sad because he is very wealthy. The word in Luke's account is actually extremely wealthy. So it's important for both Matthew, Mark, and Luke to point out that his wealth of sadness flows from the tightness with which he clings to his money. It's like he's wealthy. In sadness when he leaves. And as a side note, if you ever hear the term synoptic Gospels, that's just a reference to these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, The Gospel accounts, these ones, could be sort of seen together as though you could display them in parallel columns and sort of get most of the same historical accounts. Whereas John's Gospel is Uh, focuses a lot more on the identity of Christ, perhaps his unique relationship with the Father and other sort of broader theological and even ideological ideas. Okay, so back to the rich young ruler. He's rich. (laughs) Two, he's young. Based on the terminology used, we know he would have been about 20 to 40 years old, which means I've officially passed beyond a helpful model at this point since I recently turned 40. So think younger than me lastly he's a ruler of some sort he is probably a lay religious leader possibly a pharisee he is someone with administrative authority religious administrative authority to be clear he could have been a jewish leader in a local synagogue or perhaps even a member of the sanhedrin we don't know his vocation but we do see a strict adherence strict adherence to the law he's smart He's self-disciplined, he's wealthy and successful, he's young, he was likely respected in his synagogue and community. He probably did like push-ups for fun, right? He's that kind of guy. So people like this, they were often well off because they were part of a group that is sometimes sort of informally known as a retainer class. So this t- during this time, the Romans, who were occupiers in this land, they allowed some level of self rule for the Jews. And the Jewish religious leadership worked and cooperated within that framework. Um, there's a doctoral researcher in biblical studies at the University of Helsinki whose name I am not even going to try to slaughter because it would be embarrassing. But if you, have, if you wonder who she is, I'd be happy to pass along her information. She describes the dynamics of the Jewish religious leaders this way. In the synoptic, in the synoptic gospels, All the Jewish groups are united in their opposition to Jesus, scribes, Pharisees, Herodians, chief priests, elders, and Sadducees, everyone's anti-Jesus. Historically, Sadducees were part of the Jewish elite and thus chose the hegemonic position, this position of power. Pharisees and scribes, on the other hand, were not part of the the elite, but they have often been called a retainer class. They were the local leaders who benefited from cooperating with Rome. Even though the Pharisees and scribes were not in a hegemonic position, they served the interests of the Romans, which likely meant that they were complicit with Roman ideals. So you have kind of this higher class guy encountering a lower class guy by their own standards. So our dude is rich. He's young. He's likely some sort of religious guy in a local synagogue. He's kind of got a lot going for him. So jump back to Mark 10 in your minds now. Verse 17 said, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he asks, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not give false testimony, or not, I'm sorry, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother, teacher, or rabbi, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Imagine telling an extremely wealthy religious leader that you will be rich. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. A few things to point out. So this man stops Jesus as he's on his way, which I think points to his desperation. To stop a rabbi and fall on your knees before him would certainly have communicated the man's respect for Jesus, or at least his belief that he could help him. And what's interesting is that Jesus isn't recorded as sort of returning the typical back and forth kind of cultural greetings or expectations. You would think he would because this person is somewhat important. He doesn't address him as by his title or anything like that. Instead, he just questions his question right out of the gate. Good teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I actually think this is a pretty good question, for what it's worth. But Jesus addresses the young man's built-in assumptions. Why do you call me good? Now, we know that Jesus is good. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's goodness defined, you could say. He is perfect and holy and righteous. So why does Jesus seem to try to trip him up on a technicality? There are probably a lot of reasons. But the way I'd put it is this, and this is important, and maybe this is the main point of the sermon, although I didn't write that in. Jesus knows that if you live by technicalities, you'll die by them. (laughs) If you live by technicalities, you will die by them. Meaning if you structure your entire life obsessively attempting to morally dot every I and cross every T as a means to achieve righteousness, you will arrive at a type of self-righteousness. Or you will misunderstand the purpose of God's law entirely. Things like the Ten Commandments as something that has life in them itself. But they don't, just like the scriptures themselves are empty without the person of God. We don't worship the Bible, although it is good. We worship the Word made flesh, who is Jesus, as we read about. We also don't worship the law or Moses. OK, so we're going to do something a little bit funky. Kate and I didn't even talk about this, so hopefully we'll, this will work. We're going to flip back and forth in our Bibles, sort of metaphorically speaking here. And here's some context. The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul as a letter years later. It addresses the early Christian community of Galatia, a region in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. The letter primarily focuses on Paul's defense of the gospel of grace against the teacher, teachings of the Judaizers, who would have been religious leaders or those who had come out of sort of this background, who insisted that Gentile converts to Christianity, meaning non-Jews who had become Christians, they were insisting that they also had to observe Jewish laws still, particularly circumcision to be fully accepted by God. So I think that Paul, and this is just me guessing, that Paul was writing a letter to some folks a little bit like our rich young ruler. People who were pious, but ultimately whose faith was in jeopardy of being misplaced. It was there, but maybe just in the wrong thing. So to situate this for a little bit of a modern comparison, I think these, a guy like this, he would have been both by disposition, the way he acts, and probably even by politics, conservative, if that helps you kind of understand the frame of reference. So here's what Paul says in Galatians 3. And I'm would imagine i I'm imagining him texting the rich young ruler. So this is the Apostle Paul texting a rich young ruler type in Galatia. This is made up, of course, This apart from the technology, this conversation never happened. So this is me trying to capture the essence. Understand then, this is Paul, understand then in Galatians, if you want to follow along, this is Galatians 3, 7 through 29. So there's a full, full conversation. Verse 7, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I do have faith. Like I said, what's your point? For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now we start to see living by the the minutia, right? All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse as it is written cursed is anyone or cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Uh-oh. Because the righteous who will live will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. Which that sounds really controversial. <laughs> On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. And that's what I mean by they will also die by them. God gave us the law, so it must be good. Are you against God? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. But Israel is God's chosen people. Gentiles live in a way that defiles God. They're unclean. Verse 15, let me make an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, like a promise, That has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The promise is passed down through Christ. What I mean is this, the law, like the Mosaic law, like the Ten Commandments, right? That's kind of the kind of stuff we're talking about here and everything else. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance on the, depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Okay. So you're saying that the inheritance of God is available to all by what you call grace? The law is to be obeyed, we can't just ignore it. You could even feel that the culture will go to hell, right? You can feel that sense in a person that's wired this way. They, it's not, not every thing they want is wrong, right? But it's, it's missing something. Why then? Was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred, to, referred has come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. We're almost done. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Okay, so what was the point of the law at all? Have I wasted my whole life I spent, my, I spent my whole life memorizing and obeying the scriptures and teaching them to others. What are you saying? His conclusion, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is, no, there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free, neither is there male and female. For, all you, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Okay, so we covered like a few thousand years of history there. Not easy. But I want you to get a sense of what the experience of this young man would be. The context, he's coming in with a whole life, right? This is not just a momentary blip. This is his frame of reference. He has all of this that Paul later addresses in his heart, in his rhythms. This is his life. Paul, he emphasizes the centrality of faith in Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of his sacrifice for salvation, arguing against the necessity of adherence to the Mosaic law for justification. Okay, so I'm not sure what to compare this to, but it reminds me a little bit of like when I was a kid and I first learned that calculators exist. And I was like, wait a minute. This whole time, you had like a little machine that any of us could use to do these stupid little problems? And you've been hiding it the whole time? So I think this isn't quite the situation, maybe, that the, the rich young ruler is facing. But it would have been unsettling Paul's letter would come years later, but it's, it's a related mindset, which is why I'm pointing it out. Jesus is intentionally and lovingly trying to shake up this young man's faith in himself. Jesus is offering, what he's offering is a gift, actually, freedom. The young man needs to shift his faith from himself and his performance under the law to Jesus and apprenticeship to him. But we really, really like to get credit, or at least I would say people like this, maybe a little bit like me. We want an earned place in history. It feels beneath us to follow someone around and put our faith in them. Sounds a little bit too much like it's out of control. Okay, so back to the rich young ruler. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? So I do think Jesus is calling him out a little bit here. Are you just buttering me up? Like, do you really think I'm good? Because if you do, I'm about to tell you some stuff. So, do you think I speak for God? You seem like you're already on the edge of blasphemy here by your own standards. Do you go around calling every rabbi good? We just met. Like you stopped me in transit. You drop to your knees and you start begging me for life advice. Maybe you shouldn't be so confident in your own assumptions. But, of course, the thing that's so ironic, of course, is that Jesus is good. He's right. He is God. But the rich young ruler does not know that. And so now Jesus leads the young man through a little self-assessment. And I think it's a little perfect warning for Lent. Life is not found in the lists. It's not found in the laws and the rules and the guidelines and the arguments and the principles these things are good but only in so much as they flow from goodness from God. You've heard the term dehumanizing. It's when people are treated in a way that is inhumane. In a way that is a way that is not worthy of the dignity of a person. Perhaps they're treated like animals or products or systems or machines. It reduces the human to something less than human. Well, we do something kind of similar to God, but rather than dehumanization, the theological word is blasphemy. That is, we profane God through words, actions, or attitudes. We treat God as less than God. We commoditize him or explain away what makes him difficult. We make him into a system. We don't treat him in a way that is personal at all. We treat him like an idea If you were to treat a person like that, of course, the relationship would suffer. But, oh, how glad I am that God is personal. That does not mean he is a human, apart from the person of Christ, of course. But Jesus doesn't lean into this young man's weakness as you would first expect. Now, Jesus says... He sort of plays his own game, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And just like the good boy that this guy is, the young man confirms he has checked all the boxes. Teacher, he declared, all these I kept since I was a boy. Now, this guy has just told the Son of God... That he's kept the the law flawlessly, and I'm standing here. If like I'm, I'm assuming there's other people around next to Jesus, and they're like, mm-hmm, right? They're like, okay. But Jesus responds differently than I would, at least in that scenario. He responds. He responds with wisdom and with love. Mark ten twenty one says Jesus looked at him, and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And now we arrive at what I thought was the main point today, maybe it's not, which is that Jesus doesn't call us to wallow in our insufficiency only. He invites us to walk in a new way, a way called love. Jesus doesn't call us to wallow in our insufficiency. He invites us to walk in the way of love. Jesus did not come to shame you. (laughs) He came to set you free. And maybe you need to hear that today, I don't know. He didn't come to shame you, he came to set you free. He doesn't want to diminish you into a puddle of self-pity or embarrassment and what good would that do anyway (laughs) instead he goes before us in life and prepares good works for us to walk in we get to walk in the pathway of love ephesians 2 is a famous passage on this that and paul talks about it he says and i'm going to read the esv version um which i don't know if i gave that to you or not probably not but i'm going to read the esv actually this will be a good teaching lesson so I'll explain the word difference so you'll see NIV I'll read ESV and I'll explain the difference verse 8 in Ephesians 2 says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them Okay, so for us to do, that word is actually the word to walk. I actually think it's a helpful thing, and I think the ESV gets it right, Uh, which is it's a a mirroring of that language of discipleship. It's an along-the-way journey of walking. It's not just a task to do. It's in transit, you could say. So the key word here is actually the one that was at the end of verse 10. Okay, so back to the rich young ruler. Jesus looked at him, he loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come walk with me, come follow me, accompany me and I'll teach you along the way. This is a kingdom on the move. So we are saved by grace and we walk in grace. You are Christ's beloved craftsmanship. No wonder he looks at this young man with such care. A young man he created. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Two things. So we get to receive the gaze, meaning his, he directs himself toward us, and grace of God. That's it. We can only just receive it. Of course, we can replicate, reciprocate, but the point is here that it's a gift. God sees you and he loves you. He knows you are not perfect. He knew this young man wasn't either. He saw him for who he was. He sees you for how you, who you are as well, and Jesus is not afraid of you. Or your tough questions, or your desire to be great, or your tendency to be lazy, or your misplaced visions of grandeur. He just is not intimidated. Two, there's a type of self-righteousness that looks like kind of this boastful arrogance, like a pride, a judgment of others, that kind of thing. And I think there's also a type of self-righteousness that looks more like a desire for self-sufficiency, getting everything right, checking the box, being unstained by others, perhaps even yourself. I think the boastful public type, the kind that um, I'm going to pardon my French here, I call warmly a-holes for Jesus, that type, Um, Jesus tends to rebuke them with some public confrontation. You see that throughout the New Testament. He calls out their hypocrisy, the ways their actions and words are hurting other people. And honestly, he's using words that are much harsher than what I said. But the second kind of self-righteousness perhaps is more like a misdirected piety. And Jesus meets those people with a softer tone. It's a rebuke, but it comes with an invitation. He meets it with redirection. I think the young man is the the second kind. Could be wrong. That's just me. I think he had worked really, really hard. He was respectable, and I'm sure he did already give to the poor. That would have been very normal. Giving of alms, right, would have been expected. This wasn't an oversight that he missed here. Jesus sees him and loves him so much so that he asks him to be a disciple. He extends the invitation. Don't miss that. That's interesting. Like this guy could have been an incredible disciple. He could have been been one of the crew that we were reading about today. He had everything going for him. But I suppose in the end, maybe that was the problem. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Sell everything. Give to the poor. Follow me. So one thing you lack. The way I think about it is that the one thing you're missing is everything. (laughs) All the stuff. He's got everything, but that's the one thing he he doesn't have is nothing. (laughs) So we're going to come back to our uncomfortable question for a second. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well... It certainly means we can learn from him. If he were here bodily, I suppose we'd set our bodies in motion to pursue his life and teaching what they called the way. And today we set our lives and hearts toward where his spirit leads. It turns out that anything less than following God dehumanizes us. He brings us into something new, something better, something good something joyous something human meets divine it's something that we celebrate at easter and while there are ways we experience much of this collectively i do think that there's a crucial part of this journey your journey that is one of you seeking to encounter god yourself day in day out but when you feel lost Please remember that Jesus moves toward people who feel that way, not away from them. Jesus rehumanizes people. You could say, please let him rehumanize you. You see, Jesus wasn't inviting the rich young ruler into something bad. He wasn't inviting him into. He was inviting him into apprenticeship with God in the flesh. He was given the opportunity of a lifetime, and. He walked away. Life with Jesus will almost certainly look different than we initially envisioned. And that's because we grow, we mature, we change. People change. And God will lead us into something new. That's a good thing if our expectations grow. To follow Jesus is to walk in step with the Spirit of God. To follow Jesus is to have your life transformed by love, every little bit of it, renewed by love. To close, Ephesians says that by grace we are saved. We're not saved from God, but to Him. We're saved from our mistakes, our brokenness, our selfishness, our greed, our lust, our sadness, our death. But we are saved into something, into new life, the life of Christ, God making all things new, and that includes you and me. This world, these bodies will be made new. So here's a question to ask yourself for Lent. What aspect of your life is God encouraging you to let him transform by love? What area of your life does God want to transform by love? That's it. A sense of release isn't a punishment, of course, it's an invitation to follow Jesus in the way, a way the rich young ruler wasn't quite comfortable with yet. I'm hopeful he did later, we'll see, I don't know. I hope that he did. Here's how the story concludes, it says in Mark ten twenty-two: at this the man's face fell, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So eternal life, the kingdom of God, is something that we enter into upon becoming a Christian, which is to say when we say yes to the invitation. Come follow me. And then we take a step. And then we take another one. And then we take another one in faith. Held and helped by the spirit of God. Held and helped by love. That is, at least in one important regard, what it means to follow Jesus. So let's conclude with another word from N.T. Wright. He says this Made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, We're satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ, all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness to the present world. That quite simply is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ in the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown open before us.